Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Hear now the reading of God's inerrant and infallible word. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulations, tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would draw near to us by the power of your spirit, that you would bless to us the words that we have read and the words we will consider. Bless the words of my mouth to declare in truth what you have said, to apply to us for our encouragement, for our admonition and rebuke, and for our information that we might grow in the knowledge of Christ and in obedience to your will. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We continue in our series in Romans, looking last week at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. We saw the benefits that flow from our justification include the assurance of God's love, peace in our conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, as well as increase of grace and perseverance in grace unto the end. We saw how this is a great consolation to us that we currently have the peace of God or peace with God because what Christ has done for us in the gospel through his person and work, we are saved and justified. We also saw the gospel of Christ offers a certainty of hope. It says we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It's not maybe, it's yes, it's yea and amen. We saw for information's sake, that this is the mark of false gospels, that they offer to the believer no sense of certainty of hope. We also saw a rebuke. Charles Hodge referred to us as limping and halting along rather than seeing all of our privileges we have in Christ and soaring up on eagle's wings. We also saw the consolation in this, that the gospel of Christ offers a certainty of hope as the apostle here in Romans 5 jumps from justification to glorification, so we saw also in Romans 8 that if someone is justified, they are also glorified. And we saw, as Martin Lloyd-Jones pointed out, that if you have any portion of salvation, you have the whole thing. The whole is guaranteed if you have a part. Then our third doctrine, we saw that peace with God, grace, justification and glory are solely through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other means, there's no other name by which we can have those blessings in Christ. Seeing then that Christ is the only mediator, we saw the exhortation that as much as possible, we should take advantage of that fact that Christ is our mediator and therefore we should come to God through him. We saw how that rebukes our neglect of prayer or our joyless disposition. We glory or we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we ought not to be downcast or sullen or dejected or prayerless. 
We also saw the instruction that if it is only Christ as our mediator, there's one mediator between God and man, then all the saintly gods of the papists that they venerate, that they pray to, that they burn incense to, that they are associating with Christ others is like paganism. It's as Judaism. It's like they don't even know Christ. Now then, this afternoon, let us consider we glory in tribulation from verses 3 through 5. We'll look at this in three parts. We glory in tribulation in the first place, then tribulation worketh, and finally hope maketh not ashamed. First then, we glory in tribulation. Let's look again at verse 3. And not only so, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. Not only so means he's told you one thing, now he's going to tell you a second. The same phrase, almost identical phrase, is used in chapter 5 of this book, verses 10 and 11, chapter 8, verse 23, and chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. In each case, he's showing us here's one thing, and not only this thing, but also this thing. What is the thing he's talking about? Well, first he talked about boasting or glorying in the hope of the glory of God. Notice there in verse 2. He says we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in what? Hope of the glory of God. That God will raise us to eternal glory. That is our confident expectation of good in the future. That's what hope is. I am confident that I will receive this good thing in the future. I haven't received it yet, but because an infallible promise that cannot be broken was made to me, I will possess it. I rejoice and boast in that hope. That's not the only thing we boast in, he says. Not only that, but also this. But we glory in tribulations also. This is the other thing that we glory or boast or have confidence in. Theodoret notes, it is not that we patiently endure afflictions, but we even rejoice in afflictions. We are exalted, he exclaims, and take pride to ourselves as fellow sharers with the Lord of sufferings. Now we saw last week this word glory can mean to boast with pride, to exalt yourself. Here he says we boast in afflictions, in these crushing trials, these tribulations. Please open to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, page 1167 of your pew Bibles. The apostle Paul had tribulations and afflictions. Oh, he had plenty Verses 4 and 5, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 4. But in all things, approving ourselves as the ministers of God, in much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes. You know what that is, kids? When they whack your back and they make a stripe and they would pull off the flesh from your back. In stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in watchings, in fastings. Verse 8, by honor and dishonor, by evil report 
and good report as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live as chastened and not killed. Did Paul have afflictions? Do you know what he's doing here? He's boasting in his tribulations. He's glorying in his tribulations. Turn over to chapter 11 of the same book. He doesn't stop there. Verses 24 through 27, page 1171 of your pew Bibles. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-four. Of the Jews, five times received I 40 stripes, save one. 40 stripes is where they would make that stripe on your back. They could only do it a certain number of times according to the Mosaic law, 39 times, and then you're done. He did that, they did that to him five times. Thrice was I beaten with rods, once was I stoned, thrice I suffered shipwreck, a night and a day I have been in the deep. Can you imagine a whole night and a day in the middle of the ocean? Paul had been there. Verse 26, in journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of mine own countrymen, in perils of the, by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Did Paul have afflictions? Of course he did. And he glories, he boasts in these afflictions. Turn over to Acts chapter 14. When you want to confirm somebody in something, you want to give them what they need to know. Here are the things you must know about being a disciple of Christ. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Correct. But... There's this little thing about having a wonderful plan for you. Verse 21. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith. And that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. Tribulation is when the wheel of affliction crushes down the the grain and the grain stays underneath. The chaff is eliminated and this heavy weight that crushed you could not overcome you. That's patient endurance. But notice here, what is the wonderful plan that God has for your life? It's not necessarily good now, it's good later. You will find many tribulations, he says, on your way to the kingdom of God. And if you are, Jesus says, my disciples, and the world hated me, he says, who else will they hate? He says they will hate you. So the disciples were promised it. Paul underwent it. Aquinas comments on this rejoicing in tribulations. Anyone who vehemently hopes for something endures difficult and bitter things for it. As a sick person who strongly desires health, gladly drinks a bitter medicine to be healed by it. Do you hope for health in the next world? 
for eternal salvation to be there with Christ and the glory of God. Well, guess what? Tribulation is the bitter medicine by which God suits us and prepares us and keeps us to his heavenly kingdom. That brings us in the second place, tribulation worketh. Turn back to Romans chapter 5, please. We'll read verses 3 and 4. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. Knowing, he says, this is to perceive with the mind's eye. It's a related word to an idol, something you see with your eyes. But this is a knowing inside of your mind. You perceive this to be the case. You don't necessarily know it because you've experienced it. You know it because perhaps God has revealed it to you in his word. Knowing. Please open to James 1, verses 2 through 4. Page 1218 of your pew Bibles. 1-2-1-8. The Apostle James He has the same doctrine. Verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh, same verb, patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Notice there, the same thing. You must know this. You must count it. You must reason logically that this is joy when I fall into these temptations and trials. This proving of my character. Because you know, he says, that the trying of your faith, the putting it to test, that produces and affects patience. Same thing the apostle says. We know that tribulation worketh patience. Or literally, knowing that those tribulations patience emphatically work. This word patience, Freiburg says, is a steadfast adherence to a course of action in spite of difficulties and testings. So you have a course of action that's been prescribed to you, And you find that it's very difficult, that you're tested to see, will you keep on this course of action? Patience says, yes, I will persevere. I will endure. This is the virtue they used to talk about, fortitude. The virtue of fortitude is I will continue on in strength through the trial, through the affliction. That's what tribulation works, he says. That's the end product. This is what the verb worketh means. Ergos is a work. Ergodzo is to work something. Katergodzo means you work it from the top to the bottom, from the beginning to the end. Tribulation, he says, when it's done with the course of working in your life, this tribulation, here's the byproduct. Patience. Patience is the byproduct of the tribulation, the finished product, the end of the work. Just as we saw in Romans 4.15 that the law worketh wrath. What is the end product of seeking to be justified by doing good things? 
wrath from God. That's what it works. That's the end product of justification by works. Now, tribulations do not work patience in themselves, but they do in God's economy of salvation. Hodge says, Charles Hodge, it calls into exercise that strength and firmness evinced in patient endurance of suffering and in perseverance in fidelity to truth and duty under the severest trials. Won't you just give up that one truth that God says in his word? What if we sneer at you? What if we kill you? What if we threaten you? What if you lose your job? Will you endure with fortitude? Will you have patience under that tribulation? This is what patience does. It enables us to continue on. Notice this golden chain. We've seen these before throughout the Bible. God will say this thing produces this thing, produces this thing, or add this thing to that thing, or he who is called is justified and who is justified is glorified. There are chains. There are links together. Notice the chain here. Go back to Romans 5. We'll look at this chain in God's economy for tribulations. This is why we boast in these tribulations. One, they work patience. What does patience work? Experience. And what does experience work? Hope. And what does hope work? No shame. And we'll look at that shortly. This is the series that God has. Patience then works experience. This is the end product of this patience. Experience literally means approvedness or a character that has been tried. Originally, it was used of coins. If you bring me a coin and you say, this is a gold coin, there are tests that I could apply to it if I knew how to do them. If I were a goldsmith, I could apply tests and prove your coin to see whether it's actually gold or not. I could use heat. I could use weight. There are various things that I could use, a little microscope. And then I could tell you, no, that's not actually gold like you say it is. It's disapproved. Reprobate is the word in our New Testament. Here the word is approvedness or experience. Tried integrity. A state of mind which has stood the test. Let's turn back to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, this time in chapter 2. 2 Corinthians 2, page 1165, concerning this approvedness of character. Starting at verse 8. Wherefore, I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him. For to this end also did I write, that I might know the proof of you, whether ye be obedient in all things. Notice what Paul wanted to know. The proof of the Corinthians. I've written to you this previous epistle. I want to know, in fact... Will you do everything that I said or will you not? Will you obey or will you not? If you're familiar with the Shakespearean play, The Taming of the Shrew, this is precisely what Petruchio does to Katarina. 
Through the afflictions he imposes on her, her tribulations, he's going to prove her. He's going to test her to see whether she will actually love him as a wife should love her husband. And by the end of this play, if you're familiar, Petruchio can wager lots of money on his wife. He says that she has new-built virtue and obedience. So God, as a master husband, comes along and he says, Oh, you shrewish people. I will tame you to myself. I will new build virtue and obedience in you through the trials that I impose upon you. This is the approvedness of character. Will you hope in me, God says, and the reward I have for you? Or will you hope in your circumstances in this life, in the ease with which you can do what you want, in the resources you have available to you? God is producing through these tribulations approved character by the patient endurance of those tribulations. That's what the word experience means. You have been found the genuine issue. You have stood the test. You have new built virtue and obedience. God has made the proof of you. This is why we call them trials. The older language for suffering When Christians thought biblically, they would refer to them as trials. God is trying. He's testing you. He's proving your character. And experience hope, he says. Hope. Now remember, from verse 2, let's turn back there. Romans 5, verse 2. He said that we rejoice or we hope in the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Here now he says that this experience breeds hope. That's the finished product of this proven character is that you have hope. The hope, Shed says, of seeing the divine glory which accompanies justification and is strengthened by the experience of afflictions. So these tribulations strengthen the hope that we're given in the gospel of Christ. Which brings us in the third place, and hope maketh not ashamed, verse 5, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Such a hope, he says, does not fail. That's the idea of making you ashamed. If you anticipated the promise would be fulfilled, and you were found to be a sucker who relied on a promise that couldn't be relied on, you would be ashamed. In fact, it could even be translated terrified. You might be terrified by the failure. Now, when the Bible says you are not ashamed, that means you are confident and boasting. Rather than being put to shame, you are put to boasting. You are put to confidence in asserting it. William Plummer says the apostle expresses less than he intends us to understand. His real meaning is that this hope gives us a holy joy and confidence which nothing can put to shame. This is a figure of speech called a litotes. You say something not a little thus and such, 
or you will not be ashamed means you will be joyful and exalting and confident by this experience that you've undergone. That's the idea. This hope you have of receiving good from God in the future, it's not going to disappoint you. Why? He says, because the love of God. Now, there are two ways people have interpreted this. God's love for us or our love for God. Which is it? I believe the appropriate way to understand this is dictated by the context. What has he been talking about? The tribulations that we undergo and the change that God works by those difficulties in our character in giving us patience or fortitude, in producing in us that hope of the gospel, in giving us this experience and proven character. All these things are internal to us, not external coming from God, except as gifts that he works in us. So I believe then that in the context, the love of God that the Spirit works in us is another benefit that flows from our justification. God has loved us in sending his son and him dying for us and rising again for our justification. And that produces by his spirit in us, by believing in Christ and being justified, a love for God and all other virtues and graces of the gospel. God loves us first. He gives us justification first. And then we love him. Then we respond with love for him. By the way, just as a sidelight, if you consider the structure of the Jewish Sabbath, what comes first, rest or works? Works do. You work for six days, and then at the completion of your works, you are given a day of rest. How does the Christian Sabbath work? Christ rises from the dead on the first day of the week, You receive your rest first, and then he says, go out and work. This is the difference between the gospel and the law. The law says, do this and live. The gospel says, you are now alive, and therefore, love God. He says, this love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. Literally, It has been, it's perfect tense, it has been shed and continues to be shed. This word shed means fluids that are poured out or spilled. Even when someone would murder another person, they would shed their blood, they would spill their blood all over the place. The spiritual gifts and benefits are given with this shedding abroad, this abundance, this generous provision of God. Like the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, it's the same verb. God generously and fully provides his Holy Spirit to his people. And this shedding abroad of this love of God in our hearts, this is by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Given is the word for a free gift that you have not earned. Did you do some great thing and then God paid you with his Holy Spirit? No. The love that the Holy Spirit works in a godly person is a gift from God himself. The Holy Spirit then is a gift of grace to the people of God. Augustine says, He shows us that all those things which we might attribute to ourselves 
ought to be attributed to God. Okay, so think about this. The heathens, when they talked about fortitude or patience, when they talked about enduring tribulations, when they would talk about a proven character, who would get the glory and the credit for their fortitude, for their patient endurance? Who was it that they credited? Who did Cato say was the author of his greatness and his fortitude? Well, it was himself. He did it. He chose, rather than to be lazy and indigent, he chose to be manly and strong. Here Augustine says, although the apostle is discussing things that you might point to and say, well done, you have patiently endured tribulation, you have an approved character, you have a hope for the future, your hope will not be disappointed, you love God. Well done. Let's give him a hand. Nope. He points out correctly that we ought not to attribute this to ourselves, but to God himself, who, he says, was pleased to give us his Holy Spirit through grace. The Spirit is the one who produces the love for God. He is the one who produces the endurance and the fortitude. He is the one who gives us that approved character by means of those experiences. So the glory is all his. Doctrines and uses from these verses then. First doctrine, God's ever kind and ever wise providence has appointed all things for the good of his elect. Think about that. Could a wicked person glory in their tribulations? Could they boast about the suffering that they undergo? No, because not doing them any good. In fact, it might be crushing them and making them curse and blaspheme the name of God as we read in the book of Revelation. But here he says, we boast. Why? Because God is working in us. We joyously exalt in the hope of God's glory in the future, but also in the tribulations that get us there in our lives now. And this I use then as a consolation to us. Does your life seem hopeless? Are your afflictions too great to bear? Are you persecuted for your stand for Jesus Christ? Are you crushed under the weight of trials? Consider God's wisdom and kindness to you, saying glory in that tribulation, boast about it, rejoice in it. Don't be despondent like a heathen. Rejoice like a Christian. God's working good in you through those very trials. This serves also as a rebuke. Consider the wickedness of grumbling. When we have difficulties and tribulations and we grumble, what are we saying? No, thank you, Lord. I don't want those graces and virtues. I don't want to love you. I don't want to be comforted and have this experience of hope increase and increase in me. No, thank you, Lord. This is the attitude of a time server. I just serve God because he does good things for me. Peter Lombard, sometimes called the master of the sentences, said the following, A good man uses the world in order to enjoy God, but an evil man uses God in order to enjoy the world. 
That's what grumbling is. I'd like to use God to get good things in this life. He's not coming through for me, so I'm kind of upset. No. A good man uses the world and even the afflictions in it as a way of glorifying God himself. Enjoy God in his promise. Look to the good that God has promised to them that love him in another world, not necessarily in this life. Though God call us to tribulation, let us serve him for his own sake and not that we may spend upon our lust. Then in a third use of exhortation, let us make improvement of this truth. We may be happy people or miserable people. We may be rejoicing in crushing trials, or we can say, why is this happening to me? I'm mad. Why is this going on? What good is this? When you face a crushing trial, let me encourage you, stop yourself. Pull back the reins of your spirit and ask yourself, is this for my good, yes or no? And if it's for my good, Lord, pray this to him, help me to know the good of patience through tribulation. I know you're working good, Lord. Please help me to see it. Help me to know it. Help me to sense it. By God's grace, change your thoughts concerning these tribulations and sufferings. See them as God sees them, working a good in you that will never put you to shame. That's why Paul boasted in his afflictions, what we were reading in 2 Corinthians. A second doctrine. Not only does God in his ever-kind and ever-wise providence appoint all things for the good of the elect, but also afflictions and trials bring out what is within men. Afflictions and trials bring out what is already there. One mark of a justified man, as the apostles identifying here, is that when the affliction is done, what does he have at the end? He has fortitude. He has patient endurance of the suffering. And from that, he has an approved character. He has new formed obedience. God's seed inside of a man grows through the heat of affliction. It's only in spring and in summer when things grow from the heat. And the heat might seem oppressive and hard. But God has planted his seed in us, and the affliction brings the heat. And from that, he causes the growth. Use two of rebuke. If afflictions and trials bring out what is inside of us, do not blame your anger or lack of joy on your circumstances. Martin Luther said the following, People who impute their anger or impatience to what injures or troubles them talk foolishly. For tribulation does not make anyone impatient, but it brings to the light the impatient that was or is in him. Thus, everybody can learn in tribulation what kind of man he really is. So we must rebuke ourselves. Don't blame your circumstances. That's the easiest thing to do. Oh, if this weren't this way, I wouldn't be losing my cool. No. Tribulation is to work good in you, not evil. Also, in use of this doctrine, 
that tribulation brings out what is inside of us, a use of consolation. By God's grace, both in his work for us in the gospel, in our justification, and his work in us, in our sanctification, we are indestructible. We cannot be overcome. We cannot be conquered. This seed of God will win in the end. Augustine asks, who can hurt such a man? Who can subdue him? In prosperity, he makes moral progress. In adversity, he learns to know the progress he has made. You're prospering, you're growing in grace and knowledge, and then God afflicts you. And then you find out, he says, how far have I actually come in growing in grace and in knowledge? He goes on. When he has an abundance of mutable goods, he does not put his trust in them. And when they are taken away, he gets to know whether or not they have him captive. God prospers you. When riches increase, David says, don't set your heart upon them, for they will make to themselves wings and fly away. And when they fly away, Augustine says, then you find out, were you a slave to those goods or did you use them for the glory of God? Not only does God appoint all these afflictions for our good, not only do they bring out what is within us, but in the third place, a Christian's assurance of grace and salvation is manifold. It's got several sides to it, in other words. Remember, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5 told us that we have a glory in hope based off of our justification, what Christ has done for us in dying for our sins, in rising again for our justification, by faith we embrace that and say, yes, I have hope because of justification in Christ, because I believe in what he has done and he has accomplished. Notice here, what does God say? In verses 3 through 5, where does our hope come from? Well, it actually comes through a series of afflictions. It comes through difficulties and trials. But this also is part of our future hope. That when we undergo difficulties and crushing trials, that this produces endurance. This endurance then produces approved character. And then this approved character produces hope. A future expectation. It grows that hope, that assurance of good yet to come. And then we see the shedding of God's love abroad into our hearts. That too is part of our assurance. So then, what use of this doctrine? If a Christian's assurance of grace and salvation is manifold, how may I use this? First, of information. We must know the entire teaching of the Bible on the assurance of grace and salvation. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Period. Full stop. Do you believe in Christ? Yes. Then you have assurance of salvation. You are justified freely by his grace. This is the promissory part of our, justif- or our, of our assurance of salvation. But likewise, we find that God addresses the graces outside of justification and says, you can have assurance if you see these graces in yourself. Please open to 2 Peter chapter 1. 
We might call this the evidentiary assurance. For 2 Peter chapter 1, page 12.22. Peter gives us another way, another part of our assurance. Verse 1, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. There's our justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, the righteousness of God. Verse 4, whereby we are given, are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith, what? Virtue, moral excellence, and to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, temperance, and to temperance, patience. Here's another one of these golden chains. And to patience, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice here, Peter addresses both. You have the promise of God, you have justification by faith alone, and you have the graces to which God says, this is the sort of person who has these graces and virtues. That's the sort of person who can be assured that they are elect. He says, be diligence, be or give diligence. Why, Peter? So that you can have the pink slip, literally, to your election. It can be assured to you. You can have a knowledge that you are chosen by God because the graces that God says he produces in the elect are these. So I warn you, do not fall into one ditch. There is the presumptuous ditch, all promise, no evidence. Well, I believe the gospel, you know. I got my life insurance policy. I don't care how I live. It's a matter of whether I believed in Jesus. Well, that's part of the assurance of grace and salvation. The other part is over here. Do you have these graces and virtues that God says his electing grace produces? Do you have the love of God shed abroad in your heart? Do you have tribulations producing patience and fortitude? Because if not... You can say you believe in Jesus, but the Holy Spirit doesn't contradict himself. If he says you must give diligence and show evidence, and that proves to you in your own conscience that you have the pink slip of your election, and he says you can be assured because you believe in Jesus, well, guess what? Both are true. You're not justified by the graces that follow justification, no. But if a baby is born, the baby will most certainly cry out and will want to eat. That doesn't make it a baby. 
That doesn't give it a new birth, but it proves that it's been born, doesn't it? If it doesn't cry out, if it doesn't want to eat, stillborn, it's dead. There's no baby there, it's gone. It's just a corpse. So in the spiritual birth, justification is not caused by these evidences, but the evidences prove that the justification is there. That's why he says, you may receive the assurance you make your calling and election sure. Who? To God? Who before the foundation of the world chose his elect in Christ? You think you're going to make him sure? Moron. You can't make God sure of anything. It's to make you sure. It's to minister unto you an abundant entrance into this everlasting kingdom instead of going halting in there. You can soar in on eagles' wings, he's saying. Do not fall into the ditch of evidence only that tends toward justification by works. Do not fall into the ditch of promise only that tends toward grace that is cheap or turning the grace of God into licentiousness. So a Christian's assurance of grace and salvation is manifold. And final use from that is of encouragement. Believe the promise of the gospel. Yes, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. But also make your calling and election sure by pursuing these graces. By pursuing faith and virtue and knowledge and patience and temperance and godliness and brotherly love. Pursue these things diligently, he says. Not slack, not lazy, not maybe, not later. Now, he says, pick it up and do it. Let patience have her perfect work, that you may be entire, lacking nothing. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel of our salvation. We thank you that through the promise of Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham, born of a virgin, made under the law for us, so that we who were cursed and dead in transgressions and sins could be forgiven all of our iniquities and made alive together with Christ. Have mercy upon us. Help us to diligently pursue the assurance of our election, that our minds and consciences may be at ease as we pursue these good things that you have designed. And enable us, O God, to receive the promise that those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. Cause our tribulations and troubles to produce and work as the final byproduct, patient endurance. And that from that we might have approved character, the proof of our love. And that from that proof and approved character, that we might have hope. That you might shed abroad in our hearts a love for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.